Welcome back to The Art of Relationships. I'm Chris Grace. And I'm Tim Yohoff. We get this great joy and pleasure and privilege, actually, of just working together and talking about a number of topics related to relationships. And uh, we work at the center together. Uh, we work here as faculty at uh, Biola University. But uh, we have a website, cmr.biola.edu. We have podcasts and blogs and events. Um, Tim, I think if there's anything when it comes to the art of relationships that you and I have known we're going to start talking about, need to talk about, and that's the area of sex. Um, it is huge area for people to be processing, thinking about, and dealing the idea of sexual intimacy, uh, the cultural changes that have gone on in this topic. So uh, let's spend some time talking about it. What do you think? Yeah, because people don't talk about it. That's what's really surprising to me is that married couples seldom sit down and have the sex talk. Mm -hmm. And then uh, parents, uh, my experience has been that they are just really leery to talk about sex with their kids for a multitude of reasons. One, I think all of us feel a little bit unprepared you know, how do we do this? But second, this weird idea that somehow I'm going to plant thoughts in the minds of my kids mm -hmm. by talking about it. But we live in one of the most sexualized ages in the history of humanity, certainly via technology when it comes to sex. So we do want to talk about it and mm -hmm. talk about it from a biblical perspective, talk about how the rails kind of went off and we got away from a biblical perspective, some of the ramifications of that. We're going to touch a bunch of different issues and uh, invite people to come to our website and give questions. I'm sure this is going to surface a lot of questions. Mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, where should we start? How about starting with a biblical view of sex? Well, I think it always it always seems to start there. And just to make sure that uh, we cover some of these fundamental things, of course, we can't do a deep dive into this, but there's a lot there. I mean, when yeah. we literally, when we start talking about um, the proper boundaries or context or ways to interpret uh, all of these issues, much of it comes down to where we start from. And, and that starts in the creation account and God's created order, right? right? It starts in this idea that God designed male and female. There's got to be a reason why. Why did he design us male and female in this dimorphic type of you know experience that we all have and, yeah. and what does that mean yeah and let's not miss a very obvious point is that we have a reference point yeah today one of the biggest problems we have in culture is that we've kind of lost a reference point mm -hmm. if we're going to talk about sexuality if we're going to talk about marriage if we're going to talk about these different issues our culture has lost a reference point it's kind of like we're doing this big jigsaw puzzle but mm -hmm. we, we don't really know what the picture looks like yeah. and um we want to affirm that we believe that god's not ashamed to talk about sex the scripture's not ashamed to talk about sex mm -hmm. and so we need a biblical reference point if we're mm -hmm. going to have a healthy robust conversation about human sexuality yeah well tim let's do that this is going there's going to be a number of podcasts you and i will do on this simply because i think uh, when it comes to issues um, that are even today uh, now front and center mm -hmm. in society, yeah. in the news, it 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 does comes to the point where we realize how you view this topic influence influences a lot of the reactions that we're finding out there, including um, areas of sexu sexuality gone uh, awry, yeah. areas of sexual harassment yep. and sexual assault. and But we have to start at the beginning. And so let's do that. Let's walk through a little bit of some of the foundational things about how sex was and created and designed by God. Yeah. So here are just some introductory comments. And uh, let's just kick these around. 
uh, first, and again, this seems obvious, but not obvious to a culture that's really confused about how to define things, is that sex was created by God, defined by God, and designed for our own good. And each mm-hmm. one of those is really important. Yeah. God is not ashamed of sex. Mm-hmm. Remember Howard Hendricks, the famous uh, Dallas mm-hmm. professor? Howard Hendricks is famous for saying, uh, we shouldn't be ashamed to talk about what God wasn't ashamed to create. Mm-hmm. And so, sex is a good thing created by God. It's defined by God, and He has the right to define it, mm-hmm. right? He has the right to say, um, since I created it, here's the context by mm-hmm. which it's going to flourish. Mm-hmm. And again, God wants our well-being. He, mm-hmm. he wants us to be sexual creatures, but to do it within the right kind of context, because outside of that context, it's really going to um, warp mm-hmm. sex. And, and so, the first context is that sex was meant to be enjoyed in the context of marriage. Mm-hmm. And there's a multitude of reasons why that's true, but um, sex is really an intimate form of communication at the end of the day. And mm-hmm. for that communication to really happen the way God wants it to, it's gonna have to happen within a system. Mm-hmm. There's gonna have to be commitment, there's gonna have to be um, a, a love between two individuals, a commitment to God's design of sex and God's design of marriage, and that sex was created for that marriage relationship. I think the idea, Tim, we'll, and we'll spend some time unpacking a little bit of this, the idea of commitment and what it means and uh, this public vow and yeah. many of these things that occur. We'll talk about increasing cohabitation rates that yep. are right now yep. just uh, really shaping some of these conversations right. and the problem that that leads to. And so a lot of researchers, some yeah. of the leading researchers um, at, at major universities are finding problems uh, with, with this spike in That's cohabitation right. simply because when we talk about uh, this idea that it's designed and created by God within this context of marriage, people are then avoiding this um, by simple promises made to somebody uh, that really don't carry a lot of weight because usually when it's cohabitation, there is no public demonstration of my love for another person. That's right. I'm yeah. not on the hook then yeah. because my commitment to another person ends up being something that is done in secret rather than in a marriage ceremony that's done in a broader yeah. scale yep. to the, with witnesses all around. Yeah, and cohabitation is merely one example of something that already happened in what you mentioned, Genesis. Mm-hmm. So you have this Genesis relationship between Adam and Eve and God, mm-hmm. and God is placing certain parameters around their relationship and certain um, things that they can do and things that they can't do. And, and one... Um, Parameter he puts is, listen, you have to follow my um, uh, guidance. Mm -hmm. And so I'm going to put one thing off limits. And Mm -hmm. that thing off limits is the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. Mm -hmm. So do not touch that. If you touch that, that signals that in in essence, you're in rebellion and you're going to move away from what I I wanted to do. So starting there, we can now see how the United States has gotten to where we are today with cohabitation and a bunch of other things we'll talk about is fundamentally, we've said, God, we do not want your standards. We don't want your limitations. And Mm -hmm. we'll even talk a little bit about the sexual revolution of the 60s, which was this huge cultural moment of saying, we don't want traditional views of sex. Mm -hmm. We don't certainly want a biblical view of sex. Mm -hmm. We want to be liberated from all of that. Mm -hmm. So going back all the way to Genesis is that God designed it. He knows how it's supposed to work. He knows how how sex is supposed to flourish. Mm -hmm. So we need to trust God that he knew what he was doing when he created these kind of things. Another point I want to make that I think is really 
important for us to talk about today is that sex was intended for mutual pleasure, right? Mm. Sex wasn't just for Adam. It was for Adam and Eve and for both of them to enjoy it. Because I do think a bit of a Christian stereotype that exists today within conservative circles is that really sex is for the man. Mm -hmm. And a woman's job is to pleasure a man. And that is not the biblical view of sex whatsoever. Mm. In a minute, we're going to take a look at the Song of Solomon, one of the most Mm. interesting Mm. books of the entire Bible for a multitude of reasons. Mm. And you'll get a view of how God views sex. But it's important to say to our female listeners Sex wasn't created just for the man. It was created for you just as much and is meant to be mutually pleasurable within the confines of a traditional marriage. Right. Yeah. And I, and I just find that the idea behind uh, God's creation of us as sexual beings mm-hmm. really has um, set in, in course, in action, his response. And somehow we look back towards purposes there. But I think, Tim, your point and, and this idea that this is something that is um, part of his planned creation order. This is yeah. built into yep. the very fabric of creation. Yeah. And our sexuality somehow mimics, models, does something or pulls out the creative yeah. order that has always been part of the underlying moral fabric of the universe. Of the universe. That yeah. is, we understand who we are in light of what God has done. And that involves this idea of being sexual beings. And it involves this notion that God created and set boundaries around this created order. Yeah. And Adam and Eve are given two very interesting mandates. One, they're given a creation mandate, which is, hey, this beautiful world that I've created, I want you to care for it. I want you to be the caretakers of it. And that still applies today. The second one is a cultural mandate, which uh, God says now to Adam and Eve, hey, I want you to be fruitful. Mm-hmm. And multiply, mm-hmm. which is really going to come um, is really going to be important later in this series mm-hmm. when, when we try to define marriage culturally. Mm-hmm. I, I think from God's perspective, at the heart of marriage is this idea of procreation. Is mm-hmm. this idea that the love between these two individuals, the physical union between these two individuals, the scriptures use this beautiful. Uh, metaphor, you're now one flesh with each other, mm-hmm. is that there is within that childbearing. Mm-hmm. And again, we'll take a look at... Yeah, because there are a lot to unpack yes, with that. Yes, in a right. fallen world, certainly right. we're not saying that couples who can't have kids right. for whatever reason aren't married. Right. We're going back to Genesis. This mm-hmm. is before the fall. This is right. before all of that. So they're given a cultural mandate and they're given a creation mandate and they need each other to do both of these. Mm-hmm. And so you take sex, which was never meant to be isolated. That's mm-hmm. the biggest problem I have with sex today is we just isolate it, right? We isolate it through pornography. Mm-hmm. We isolate it through even these crazy um, romantic movies that we see today is mm-hmm. that sex is isolated away from companion commitment, and all of those other factors, and it was never meant to be isolated like that. So generally speaking, uh, God creates sex. It's a beautiful thing. It's done within a particular context, and that is Adam and Eve, one flesh relationship with each other, commitment to each other. Mm -hmm. And God is saying, man, it's it's an absolutely beautiful thing. In fact, he calls it a gift, right? It's a gift to us that we uh, are given to, in order mm-hmm. to enjoy uh, not only in the companionship and the intimacy which humans yeah. have unique needs for, yeah. uh, but also Tim, I think what you're also saying then that there is this 
idea that there's something even more profound that's occurring in this creation yeah. of this yeah. union between yeah. uh, one man and one woman that does something bigger and greater and grander on this scale. Yeah. And that grander idea and notion is that there are purposes to this union and that we have in our disordered state, we tend to isolate, pull That's aside right. yeah. from yeah. and create uh, realities that can either get us in trouble, create shame, but also this hiding uh, and in fear running from something. So what do you think? Yeah. And um, <clears throat> again, listeners might be thinking married couples, hey, our sex life is not a gift. Mm-hmm. It's a source of great tension. Sure. It's the source of isolation. So just remember, we're, we're taking it back to the beginning. This is before the rails go off, the world's in rebellion, Adam and Eve rebel against God. We're just trying to give readers, uh, break some stereotypes about what people um, think about what the Bible has to say. That's why I want to talk just for a second, Chris, about the Song of Solomon. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, all my education was done at UNC Chapel Hill. Loved UNC Chapel Hill, loved my professors. But boy, did they have weird ideas about Christianity when it came to sex. They honestly thought the Bible is Mm anti-sex. Like God is just not pleased with this and he's always trying to to, um, stomp down on it, get rid of it. That's why it was so much fun to introduce to my friends the Song of Solomon Mm -hmm. on a multitude of levels. So, um, Chris, I want to read to you actually parts of this. But but first, let me say this about the Song of Solomon. It predates Plato. Mm -hmm. It was written during a time when women were not, one, they didn't have a public voice whatsoever. And if they did have a public voice, you're certainly not talking about sex in public. Women did not have that kind of power, right? right? So along comes the Song of Solomon, where the woman's voice is the dominant voice of the entire book of the Old Testament, right? It's the woman's voice, and then you have the chorus, and then you have a male voice. So in a time that women had no political voice, here comes the Song of Solomon. It says, no, the main character is the woman, and she's talking about sexuality. She's talking about, uh, in a proper way, her desires, her sexual desires. So, let me start off by just reading a couple, and we can make some observations as as we just go ahead and read this. So, first, let's start with the man's perspective. And uh, here's what he says. Uh, Now, let me just say this. Um, There was a book called Love Life by Ed Wheat that is really an interesting book. He's a Christian author. He recommends that couples actually read these passages to each other. Now, I think that's a great idea. I'm just going to suggest that you update some of it, right? Modernize some of this. But here we go. This, This is Solomon speaking to his bride. How beautiful are your feet in sandals, O princess's daughter. The curves of your hips are like jewels. The work of the hands of an artist. My goodness, how, how is he doing right there, right? <laughs> life and death is in the power of the tongue, and he is speaking life to this woman. Your navel is like a round goblet, which never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is like a heap of wheat fenced about with lilies. Now, I know what he's trying to say, Chris, that in a time of famine, it's good to have wheat in, a, in, in storage that you'll survive the famine. I'm just, how would Elisa react if you said, honey, your belly's <laughs> like a heap of wheat? <laughs> I think it all depends on the context. <laughs> yeah, I, okay, I'd be on the couch. That's just, I'm just saying. Uh, then he continues, 
Your two breasts are like two fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like a tower of ivory. Ivory. Your eyes like the pools in Heshbon by the gate of Bath Rabim. Your nose is like the tower of Lebanon. Right? Okay, that's up to you guys. I would maybe paraphrase that. Which faces towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel. And the flowing locks of your head are like purple threads. The king is captivated by your tresses. How beautiful and how delightful you are, my love, with all your charms. Your stature is like a palm tree and your breasts are like its clusters. I said... I will climb the palm tree. I will take hold of its fruit stalks. Oh, may your breast be like the clusters of the vine and the fragrance of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. God bless the public reading of his word. <laughs> right, but, but the reason I love that, Chris, is how much it shocked my UNC Chapel Hill friends. Mm-hmm. Right, they're like, what? That's mm-hmm. where? That's where? Mm-hmm. Man, that's the Bible. Right? God has a passionate view that is totally appropriate for a husband and wife to speak to each other in those kind of glowing sexual terms, right? Yeah, I think it, it what it does is it reminds you again of um, what we have lost uh, in, in this whole cultural notion of sexuality yeah. that really it originated in a deeply powerful uh, way with God. Yeah. In language that was poetic, that was yes, deeply yes. profound, and recognized uh, the creative nature of who God is. And to think that this can strike people as odd or shocking today yeah. um, in and of itself holds this, what have we lost to get to the point yes. where yeah. this seems odd or strange or shocking? And let me just draw one principle from this for our male uh, listeners. In today's crazy body image culture, where women constantly look at unrealistic body images that come through, you know, covers of magazines or movies, where where women have to literally starve themselves, get professional trainers to look like that, um, it, it is so important for a husband to look at his wife's body and compliment her, mm. right? And, and not ever shame her or not ever say, honey, should you really be eating that? Or right Now, we all need to get in shape and it's good for us to whatever. But husbands, we look at our wives in today's crazy, abnormal body image culture and we, we praise our wives. Right? I remember when the kids were young, I, I, Noreen would walk downstairs and I'd stand in front of the boys, guys, look at your mother. Hubba, hubba, right? Stay away from the frozen foods. Yeah, which is a Steve Martin line, right? But it was so good for the kids to hear that, Mm -hmm. right? Now, here's the really cool thing, Chris, about the Song of Solomon. You would expect that to be it. You would expect, okay, well, of course, it's the man's perspective on sexuality because this is a male-dominated culture. But then, as I said before, the woman's view is the dominant view. So now listen to how she talks about her husband's body. This is what um, Solomon's bride says. My beloved is dazzling and ruddy, outstanding among 10,000. I love that. Mm -hmm. In a crowd of 10,000, my eyes are drawn to you immediately. His head is like gold, pure gold. His locks are like clusters of dates and black as a raven. I always say to Noreen, sorry, I have no... uh... I have no locks. Uh, his eyes are like doves beside streams of water, bathed in milk and reposed in their setting. His cheeks are like a bed of balsam, banks of sweet-scented herbs. His lips are lilies dripping with liquid myrrh. Now, commentators have been a little bit confused by that. Uh, either he had a drooling problem <laughs> or uh, she, she's uh, describing a passionate kiss. 
right? His hands are rods of gold set with beryl. His abdomen is carved ivory inlaid with sapphires. His legs are pillars of alabaster set on pedestals of pure gold. His appearance is like Lebanon, right? Uh, she's from Lebanon, most likely, and it's just uh, comparing him to her favorite um places. Uh, Choice is a cedar. His mouth is full of sweetness. He is wholly desirable. Now notice this. This is my beloved. This is my friend, O Mm -hmm. daughters of Jerusalem, right? Mm -hmm. Not isolating sex from the friendship, Mm -hmm. but saying it is the friendship that causes me to look at you with a passionate gaze. Mm -hmm. Again, I love the fact that she was free to speak her mind, uh, led by the Holy Spirit to do so. Mm. Yeah. So, Tim, in, in thinking through this notion of um, sex created and designed by God, that uh, sex was um, meant to be enjoyed in the context of marriage, that sex is this gift from God, yeah. uh, and that it, it it's for our mutual pleasure, yeah. and it creates all of these. Tell me what what is the reaction for people then that have never read this or are for the first time hearing this, does do they just simply start to see patriarchy in here? Which, mm, or, or sure. do or do they realize? Wait a minute, this is this breaks that completely and establishes this notion of you know a very different way of looking at sexuality between in in a, in a yeah, marriage. Yeah, well, I would say in some ways it's anti patriarchal in the sense that, of course, this was written during a patriarchal time. This Mm -hmm. predates Plato. This is near Eastern literature. So no doubt it's a patriarchal context. That's what makes it so remarkable that the woman's voice via the Holy Spirit in a patriarchal time is, no, 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 the woman's going to speak here. She's Mm going to be the dominant voice in the Song of Solomon, and she is going to talk as freely about sexuality as the husband was allowed to do, which we know based on dating of the Song of Solomon. That is countercultural as you want to get. That is mm-hmm. God's wonderful, hey, I'm going to shock you mm-hmm. by saying what I really think about sex, and that is that women are co-equals when it comes to the sexual realm, mm-hmm. and they are fully um, allowed to experience it and vocalize it as much as men do. That's why, Chris, I think it's so cool to think of how forward-thinking the Song of Solomon was. Mm -hmm. And and again, I love to shock my non-Christian friends who tend to think, boy, the Bible is so backwards when Mm -hmm. it comes to sex. And man, here's a forward-thinking book stuck right in the middle of the Old Testament. That's a great message we need to have as Christians today. Yeah, that's good. There's um, language uh, there that you read, Tim, that also provides for us... um, ways uh, to recapture something as well, uh, and that is this idea of a celebration, uh, right. that this idea of yeah. uh, created order that provides for us um, a good, which also then I think, uh, Tim, validates this the other idea that when yeah. we are outside or working outside of this boundary or yep. outside yep. of this created yep. moral order, the results yeah. Must be a, a chaos and a disorder um, that is clearly being seen today. Yeah. That is sending us yeah. in places where some of our greatest concerns, uh, some of our greatest disconnect from each mm-hmm. other, uh, for whatever reason, seem to revolve around this area of a broken sexuality. That's right. And so the the degree to which this is seen as a joyful, powerful pleasure gift from God given to us. 
what when the greater that gift and the more powerful is when it's broken, then the amount of things that we see going awry into disorder kind of tells us again the significance of this gift. Um, and and so much can be pointed back yeah. to where yeah. this this has gone off the tracks for us. And the gift is complicated. See, I think culture today wants to say it's not complicated. It's two people in the backseat of a car and all that kind of stuff. But what we're going to look at in future um, sessions is how complicated sex is. Uh, let, let me leave you with a quote. This is Peter Ustinoff said, Sex is a conversation carried out by other means. If you get on well out of bed, half the problems of bed are solved. Mm. In other words... It takes a lot to have a robust, healthy sexual life, and maybe we can talk about that in a future podcast, but I think of systems theory, which is it takes a bunch of different components to come together to have a vibrant view of sexuality and to have a vibrant um, sex life. And maybe we can discuss that in the future. Yeah, um, let's do it. And, and let's unpack a couple of things, uh, Tim, uh, as to... Uh, and not only when this started to get off the rails, when when the conversations, when this idea of sexuality began to change, and uh, how do we recapture something? How yes. do we recapture yep. that yep. which is a moral good, yep. a created order good that um, it has done so much in the way of directing and calling us back to who God is, and then not only who God is, but then what is our created man, our creation mandate as human beings to yeah. bring others to him. Yep. It's done somehow in this context. And we've seemed to have really lost a little bit of this uh, in our culture today and even more um, over the last number of years. So yeah. how do we, how do we then recapture some of this is by understanding how he designed us, how he made us, how this is given to us for our yep. pleasure and our joy, but also to bring him glory. Um, there's a lot to talk about. My goodness. Yeah, that went by fast. I can't yeah. believe that that went by fast. It's okay, so, so um, as we'll continue this series next time, um, we'll begin to look at some of the, the ways in which this has an impact in our world yeah. and in our lives, and then in these personal relationships that are so important, so clear, and, and do so much for us. So, and we're sex experts, Chris. That, you and I have always <laughs> thought that that... <laughs> no, we're not. <laughs> but we certainly have some thoughts. That's right. All right. Well, let's uh, let's continue this next time, Tim, and um, talk to you all later. Mm-hmm.